The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Matt Ridley reveals the identity of the scientists in the Wuhan laboratory linked to COVID. Martin Newland makes the moral case for becoming a foster carer and Mary Wakefield confesses her hatred of drones. First up, It's Matt Ridley. That a pandemic caused by a bat coronavirus started in the city with the world's largest programme of research into bat coronaviruses was always intriguing. That among the first people to get ill with allegedly Covid-like symptoms in the month the pandemic began were three scientists working in that lab was highly suspicious. Now that we know their names, we find one of them was collecting what turned out to be the closest cousins of SARS-CoV-2 at the time, and another was doing the very experiments that could have created the virus. These revelations make it almost a slam dunk for the coronavirus lab leak hypothesis. On the 10th of June, the author and free speech campaigner Michael Schellenberger broke the news at his Substack site that the three sick scientists were Ben Hu, Yu Ping and Yan Zhu, as confirmed to him by multiple US intelligence sources frustrated by the Biden administration's refusal to release this key fact. This week I was with him when the Wall Street Journal announced that it had independently confirmed his story with its intelligence sources. Who is Dr. Who? The Wuhan Institute of Virology has hundreds of scientists, but there is one team, the Centre for Emerging Infectious Diseases, with a focus on bat coronaviruses, headed by Shi Zhengli. Her right-hand man and star pupil is Ben Hu, who runs the lab experiments. Hu was the lead author on the Institute's most remarkable achievement, published in 2017, that it had grown three bat viruses in the lab and then created eight new hybrid viruses with the spike genes from wild bat viruses spliced into the genetic backbone of one of these lab-grown viruses. Yu Ping is a student who worked as one of the lab's virus hunters, collecting the bat viruses in caves all over southern China. His or her, the name could be male or female in China, Master's thesis, written in June 2019, was unearthed by the brilliant young Indian internet sleuth, Jeet Ray, known for a long time only as The Seeker. It detailed 170 SARS-like viruses collected mostly from Yunnan province. Among them was a group of nine viruses that at the time the pandemic began 
were the nine closest relatives of the virus causing COVID, but whose existence had been a closely guarded secret until November 2020. When Yu Ping's thesis appeared as a paper, these viruses were omitted. The third sick scientist, Yan Zhu, was the senior experimentalist in the lab. She appears as a co-author on many of the lab's virus papers, including a May 2021 paper at last revealing the genomes of the nine viruses in Yu Ping's thesis. So these guys are not some random members of the Institute. They are at the coalface. As far as we know, all three are still alive. Horseshoe bats in southern Yunnan, where this intensive virus hunting happened, are almost certainly the wild reservoir of the pandemic's closest cousins. A mine shaft in Mojiang County, a cave in Mengler County, and a cave in Laos have all yielded bat viruses with 96% or more genetic similarity to SARS-CoV-2. But none is a perfect match. Southern Yunnan is a long way from Wuhan, about as far as London to Rome. That's an implausibly long journey for an infected raccoon dog or bamboo rat to make to market, especially without causing an outbreak along the way. The one animal we know was making the journey regularly and visiting bat caves was Homo scientificus. There is another name that may prove interesting. In an interview in 2017, Ben Hu thanked a scientist called Li Biao Zhang for helping collect viruses in Yunnan. In 2019, Zhang announced the discovery of a species of horseshoe bat, Rhinolophus malayanus, new to the area. And it was in this species that the Mengler virus turned up with close resemblance to SARS-CoV-2. Dr. Zhang works not in Wuhan, but in Guangdong, at the very institute that announced in 2020 it had found traces of a similar virus in a smuggled pangolin confiscated before the pandemic began in 2019. This led to brief excitement in early 2020 that pangolins might be the intermediate species that transmitted COVID to people. The lack of pangolins in the Wuhan market and the genetic distance of the pangolin virus from SARS-CoV-2 soon scotched that theory. But it remains an enigma. How did a pangolin in Guangdong pick up a bat virus from distant Yunnan? Yuri Dagin, a Russian-Canadian biotech expert, thinks the answer is staring us in the face. The same lab that sequenced the samples from pangolins in 2019 was also, we know, sequencing samples from Dr. Zhang's Malayanus bats around the same time. Maybe the pangolin never had a coronavirus. It had much higher doses of Sendai virus. But the sequencing machine was contaminated by Malayanus bat samples. Such contamination occurs frequently in such machines and is difficult to prevent. Dr. Hu's name appears on another key document, the notorious Defuse proposal. This was the 2018 grant application to the U.S. Department of Defense from Dr. Peter Daszak of the U.S.-based EcoHealth Alliance, which proposed putting furin cleavage sites 
small genetic features that open up the spike protein in such a way that it makes the virus much more infectious, into newly discovered bat SARS-like coronaviruses to enable them to infect human cells and humanized mice. SARS-CoV-2 is the only SARS-like virus ever found with a furin cleavage site in it, a fact that led several Western virologists to suspect a lab leak right at the start. Dr. Shi had already created furin cleavage sites in other kinds of coronaviruses. The purpose of this highly risky experiment, by the way, was to test how dangerous newly discovered viruses were in human beings, the virological equivalent of looking for a gas leak with a lighted match. One of the nine viruses in Yu Ping's thesis was being actively worked on in 2018, we know, because that date appears on some of its sequences in the database. But the genome of that virus, known as RATG13, is a puzzle. And the Indian scientist Munali Rahalkar does not believe it's a real sequence at all, but a composite of several virus genomes designed to conceal the fact that SARS-CoV-2 itself was in the lab in 2019. I have always resisted such speculation, but it's getting harder to trust anybody in this strange story. That was Matt Ridley. Next up is Martin Newland. Three months ago, I travelled with my wife to Ireland's west coast for a reunion with our first foster placements, now settled with their new family. The two sisters, then aged five and two, had been removed by police from their home in pyjamas and driven to our house in 2017. I remember trawling around the shops the next day, panic buying clothes and pushchairs, while my wife fed them, read to them, bathed them and administered nip treatments. The five-year-old stayed with us for two years. Her younger sister left us after a few months for another temporary foster family. Both now sail, ride horses, play rugby and are about to get Irish citizenship. We're temporary foster carers whose own four children have left home. We can take short-term emergency placements or placements of up to two years. We've looked after Syrian, Iranian and Afghan refugees found clinging to lorries at our local port of Felixstowe. We've hosted children from the travelling community, emergency cases removed from their homes, children at risk of sexual exploitation, children born addicted to opiates. We've taken on children as respite care for long-term foster carers who need a break. Some of the kindest and most effective carers in my experience are from modest backgrounds, painter decorators, council workers, administrators and builders. Our first two girls are now with a health and safety specialist and his wife who runs a small arts and crafts business. Fostering agencies tend to pay carers more than local authorities, but the amounts are never life-changing. Nobody fosters for the money. Successful applications for foster carers are declining, even as overall demand for places skyrockets, with nearly 100,000 children predicted to be in care by 2025 in England, up from around 70,000 in 2015. Before lockdown, my wife and I used to get on average three requests a month to help. After lockdown, we could get as many as three requests for an emergency placement in a week. Lockdown led to the near total withdrawal of vital services such as daycare, healthcare, educational and social support, leading to unimaginable suffering for children living in pressure cooker environments. 
The increase in numbers has meant that local authorities have had to rely on expensive agencies to provide care home accommodation. There have been official recommendations that they use less agency care, but this takes little account of the pressures placed on them. After lockdown, we received many calls on a Friday, as social workers tried to find a cheaper and more convivial place for their charges before the weekend. Our catchment area grew and grew as children were sent from further and further afield, miles away from relatives and their local schools. Spiralling demand has combined with a decline in volunteers. Growing numbers are deciding to quit altogether. A foster carer has an uncertain status, neither employee nor volunteer. You don't have full employment rights, but nevertheless play a demanding and vital role in public sector care provision. Emergency carers often hold the fort while a child's legal status is processed through the courts. They have delegated authority only and little discretion. In truth, there is often no option but to use common sense, seeking forgiveness rather than permission from social workers, who in any case can sometimes be hard to contact. Many of those with the mental, moral and emotional robustness to foster, but with modest means, are giving up because of the rising cost of living. This is where the more affluent should step in. Sponsoring a child in Africa via direct debit is not the same as actually inviting one to live with you. My wife and I don't foster because we like it particularly, or because we want to be heroes in some romantic, redemptive human narrative. Fostering limits freedom and tests patience and relationships. It imports tragedy into the home. We foster because we have the space and resources, and because there was no real excuse not to, especially once we began the vetting and training. If there is a reward, it's witnessing a child with basic necessities such as safety, nourishment and routine secured, learning how to trust. Many of those we have cared for have many siblings, often produced by a single mother and a host of absent fathers. One boy had seven brothers. Another 14-year-old girl who visited had 14 siblings. Thus a vast tapestry of care provision is created at soaring public cost, delivered by a host of public servants from police to social workers. The father of one child we cared for moved on to get another woman pregnant a few months later, the baby being placed almost immediately under supervision. There are not enough social workers or foster carers to cope with this. Too many children, some of them move between different carers and care homes 10, 20 or 30 times, are released into society at 18, bitter, incapable of trust, with little education, and destined to repeat the whole pattern. After tragic murders of children under social care provision, there is usually a media pylon in which social workers are blamed. But social workers do not possess magical powers of discernment about what is going on in the privacy of a home. Parents can be very clever in thwarting their efforts, and the lawyers assigned to their cases often know how to make things difficult. I've met social workers just out of their 20s who are handed multiple complex cases. There are going to be mistakes. I believe the primary cause of rising numbers of children in care is family breakdown, but irresponsible fathers, childlike mothers and the lack of incentives aimed at securing family cohesion all play a part. Little is done to reinforce the notion that a child is a responsibility rather than an accessory. And running through all of this is addiction, addiction to drugs, to alcohol or gambling. In the addicted household, a child born to provide comfort and love soon becomes an impediment. No government has the spine to take on the task of reconstituting stable family environments and risk falling foul of the culture wars. So we're left with a problem of capacity. Given the numbers involved, throwing more money at child services is only part of the solution. The immediate answer lies in recruiting more foster carers. I hope this article helps towards that end. That was Martin Newland. 
And finally, here's Mary Wakefield. I have a plan for my old age. Now that we all might live for a century or so, feeling redundant and bemused, it's important to prepare, and I have. In my 80s, I will be a destroyer of drones. All drones will fall within my remit, but my speciality will be hobby drones, the remote control quadcopters that whine over the English countryside, up and down the coast and round and round above our national parks. To any passerby, I will seem innocuous, just your average rambling octogenarian. But tucked away beside my freedom pass will be a catapult, and the case containing my varifocals will be heavy, with six millimeter steel ball bearings. The plan came to me a few days ago, as I was floating in the North Sea. It was a slack tide, and the seals were crooning. The stress of London life had just begun to lift when I heard that telltale nasal whine and turned and saw the little horror skimming across the waves, a blot against the bright sky, its camera lens twitching in and out like a proboscis. There are many annoying noises in the countryside, but nothing for me quite beats a drone. Lawn mowers, chainsaws, leaf blowers, perhaps if you hate your neighbour they're hard to bear, but at least they serve a purpose. When the job ends, so does the noise. A drone idles in the sky indefinitely and there's no telling what it's up to. It destroys not just the silence, but the feel of solitude. And what's the point? Who looks back at all those thousands of hours of swooping footage? All those bird's eye views of the coast just waste space in server farms. Connor Friedersdorf once wrote a piece for The Atlantic about a very particular horror of drone warfare in Pakistan. He said, Women cower in their homes, children are kept out of schools, the stress they endure gives them psychiatric disorders. Men are driven crazy by an inability to sleep as the drones buzz overhead 24 hours a day. Now, it's absurd to compare toy drones to killer to their killer cousins, but they do have something in common. Just the sight of them is stressful. You feel watched, it's oppressive. It's often hard to spot a drone's operators, but that day by the sea they were easy to identify. A man and a woman, standing on the beach nearby, heads together, examining the drone's footage on their phone. Watching me, perhaps, my eyes bugged out with rage, lips a hypothermic blue. I could, I suppose, have risen dripping from the sea and accosted them. I could have told them that there were oyster catchers trying to nest on the rocks nearby and explained how stressful drones are for wildlife. But what would have been the point? Drone hobbyists are often jolly types, it's fathers and sons on an afternoon out. And they're innocent, quite within their rights. Though the quangos that govern the British countryside usually love a ban, for some reason they give drones a pass. Dogs on leads, yes, but drones roam free. Snowdonia, Dartmoor, the Lake District, Northumberland National Park, all legal droning zones. I can't think why. We're endlessly told to get out and enjoy nature for our mental and physical health. So why do the authorities permit an activity that so quickly and casually ruins it for everyone? In the suburbs, I'm told, perverts fly quadcopters low over swimming pools and hot tubs, filming without fear of being caught. When I'm old, I shall have business cards made up, advertising my drone-destroying services, and pop them through suburban letterboxes. If called on, I'll hide like a sniper in the pampas grass, catapult at the ready, and I'll knock peeping drones out of the sky. 
and when I'm a confident crackshot, I'll bring my catapult to London. This week, the Metropolitan Police's chief scientific advisor, Paul Taylor, claimed that drones will soon be used to pursue criminals in cars. There's a fuss being made about the danger police car chases pose to suspects, and Mr Taylor thinks drones could be the answer. With respect to Mr Taylor, this is nuts. Most police chases begin when a suspect refuses to obey an officer's request to stop. So how can a drone help? What's the officer to do? Call the drone squad miles away at Drone HQ? Hope the prospective criminal waits politely while he digs his quadcopter out of the boot? I'm not even sure it's safer to be traced by a drone than by a car. Imagine trying to keep that nasty hornet in your rear-view mirror while driving at high speed. I expect that before I'm 80, surveillance drones will be part of city life. But my bet is they'll be deployed to catch, not criminals, but civilians. Every Crimworth is salt in London already wears a face mask full-time, so what use will facial recognition cameras be? Instead, drones will be set on motorists who go more than 20 miles an hour or try to sneak around a low-traffic neighbourhood roadblock. Council drones will scout for parking misdemeanours and hover in the hope of catching someone putting the wrong thing in the wrong bin. No matter. I'll be prepared by then. I'm serious about my vocation and have already found a catapult I like on a website for end-time preppers. The tech may improve over the next three decades, but for the purposes of immediate practice, this one seems good. I'll wear a face mask myself and spend my dotage lying in wait, catapult at the ready. I'm looking forward to it. That was Mary Wakefield. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed these articles, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran, and do join us again next week. Thanks for listening.